Hey, welcome to another episode of More Than Bread, number 226 to be exact. And, and we're in the midst of a series that I've called Letters from Prison. Four letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to friends and churches that he had actually helped to start. Ephesians was written to the church of Ephesus, which, by the way, is also one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. Colossians written to the church at Colossus. And Philemon, which was written to a friend for a friend. A little bit different letter. You know, one thing that's interesting and, and really not unimportant, Paul never wrote to the churches the congregations in Ephesus or the churches in Philippi, he wrote to the church. And that doesn't mean there was only one organizational church that met in one place. There were multiple groups of people meeting in multiple places, but one church. They considered themselves the church defined by its geography, not by its theology or practice. One church. And we're in the midst of Paul's letter from prison to the church of Philippi. Last episode, I read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This time, uh, we'll be reading Philippians 3, verses 7 through 14. Some of the verses from last one, but a few extra as well. I'll be reading from the New International Version, but before I read, just take a moment and remind yourself, just kind of imagine this. Seriously consider that this has happened to you. You've lost your job. You're isolated from your friends. You're living in a strange country where you don't know people. Jealous enemies have trashed your reputation. You've been arrested on trumped-up charges. You've been physically beaten, put in jail. You don't know if you'll ever get out of jail. You might be put to death, maybe tomorrow. For four years, Paul has been in miserable circumstances. Those circumstances, not at all what I would have expected when I signed on to God's team. He, he spent two years in prison in Caesarea for false charges. And then he's put on a ship to go to Rome to appear before Nero, who's not known for his charming disposition to Christians. On the way there, he's shipwrecked, stranded on an island, bitten by a poisonous snake, refugee for the winter, then continues on to Rome, spends another two years in prison awaiting trial to be most likely executed. During this two-year period in Rome, he's likely chained to or at least watched by a guard 24 hours a day, absolutely no privacy. Every few hours, four hours or so, he gets a new guard. And this isn't the first time this kind of junk has happened to Paul. I mean, if you were Paul and you signed up for Team Jesus, believing the following Jesus meant your life would be all about gain. Right now, you're looking for a refund and a new, new team. If I were going through this, to be honest, I might have experienced just a little bit of the why me wine. But that wasn't Paul's attitude. In fact, as he sat down to write this letter, the one word he could not get out of his mind as he wrote to his friends in Philippi, the one word he could not get out of his mind was the word joy. Rejoice. Be full of joy. That word, that call, is woven throughout his letter. Now, why? You got to ask the question, why? I mean, where does joy come from when life is filled with crap? It comes from having Christ. Listen to Paul's words, verses 7 through 14. He said, But whatever things were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. I count everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. In fact, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from following the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on, I press on, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I mean, can you hear the passion in those words? Paul had such a deep, deep passion to know Christ, to gain Christ, to be with Christ. What keeps us from that kind of passion? What keeps us from pursuing the greater treasure of Christ with all our hearts? I think it's simple. Not simplistic, not easy, but but simple. I think we have counted everything else. We have not counted, excuse me, I think we have not counted everything else as a loss. See, we still have confidence in the stuff that Paul counted as a loss. See, listen, we need to stop counting on our losses. Before Paul gets to these words about passion and treasure, he's talking about confidence. Where do we place our confidence? He, he lists all the things in his life, all the awards, all the accolades, all the strengths and skills, all the resources in which he used to place his confidence. Before Jesus, that was what he placed his confidence in. It was the stuff he relied upon for success and life. And then he says, no more. All that stuff is like garbage. My confidence now is in Christ, knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ. Everything else is a loss, and I'm not going to count on my losses. So let me ask you, what are you counting on? In what are you placing your confidence? Upon what do you rely there's a scene in one of my all-time favorite sport movies called The Natural. Robert Redford is a, a baseball player named Roy Hobbs, perhaps the most gifted baseball player ever, a high school wonder boy whose chance in the big leagues is cut short when he is wrongly sentenced to prison for murder. Years later, released, an aging Hobbs gets a second chance. He signed with the New York Knights, the league's worst team, but through his gift for baseball, Hobbs rallies the team from last place to the playoffs. It's the championship game, bottom of the ninth. Pittsburgh is ahead two to nothing. The Knights have two outs, runners on first and third, and Hobbs steps up to the plate. He's their only chance. This is his moment. If you watched the movie, you knew that ever since high school, Hobbs has played with one bat and one bat only, a bat he made himself from the heart of a tree struck by lightning, burned into the bat is a lightning bolt and the words Wonder Boy. He carries it as the essence of his greatness. He's placed his confidence in that bat. Since high school, he's never played with another bat. His first swing is a miss. His second, a hit foul high and behind him. His third swing is a mighty hit down first baseline, a potential home run that just barely drifts foul. But then as he makes his way back from first base, he sees his bat lying there in pieces, shattered from the last swing. Eldridge writes, this is the critical minute, critical moment in a man's life when all he has counted on comes crashing down when his golden bat breaks into 
pieces. His investments fail. His company lets him go. The church fires him. He's leveled by an illness. His wife walks out. His daughter turns up pregnant. What is he to do? Will he stay in the game? Will he shrink back to the dugout? Will he scramble to try to put things back together again as many men do? The true test, Eldridge writes, about this illustration. The beginning of his redemption actually starts when he can no longer rely on what he has used all his life. Let me say that again. It's so important. The true test of a person, the beginning of our redemption actually starts when we can no longer rely on what we have used, what we've placed our confidence in all our lives. That happened to Paul. It happened on the day that he had a trip to Damascus, penciled into his daytime. On the way there, Jesus showed up, a blinding light and a voice from heaven. He knocked Paul off his camel and he said, Paul. And Paul said, who are you? And Jesus said, Paul, I'm God and you're not. You've devoted your life to a lie and I'm not going to let it continue. I'm not going to let it continue. (laughs) I'm not going to let it continue. Ask yourself, what am I counting on? What's your golden bat? I remember a few years ago, I was talking to my spiritual director. Actually, it was one of the last conversations we had, I think, before he died, tragically died. We were talking about what I could do to deepen my relationship with God. And at some point he said, Dan, I just don't think you have space in your life for Christ. Somehow that got into a discussion on my work ethic. Now, if you know me, if there's one thing I pride myself on, it's my work ethic. I, I have a whole story that I've, I've rehearsed, and I'll tell anyone who will listen about how I picked up my work ethic from my father, and I value hard work, and you always give more to your organization than you get from it. I may not be the smartest pastor, but no one is going to outwork me. And then my spiritual director asked me a question. He said, Dan, is your work ethic from God? I was silent for about a two-minute eternity, and then I responded, that question sucks. Why? Because the Spirit almost immediately poked me and said, you've put your confidence in your work ethic. But I got to tell you, being known as a guy who works hard is garbage compared to being known by Christ. What I can accomplish on my own without Jesus, it's garbage compared to what he can do through me. In fact, if I have Christ and nothing else, I've got everything, which also means that without Christ, if I have everything but not Christ, I've got nothing. So often we think we have so much, we think we can get so much, or we deserve so much, but our much is nothing without Christ. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp writes, if you're not feeding your soul on the realities of the presence, promises, and provisions of Christ, you will You will ask the people, situations, and things around you to be the Messiah they can never be. If you are not attaching your identity to the unshakable love of your Savior, you will ask the things in your life to be your Savior, and it'll never happen. So Paul gives us our marching orders in verses 12 through 14. When he says, not that I've already obtained this. I haven't already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, but I press on. I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, Paul said, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What is behind you that you need to forget? What do you need to strain forward towards? Paul says, I press on, I press on, I press on toward the goal for the prize 
of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forget what is behind. Press on to what is ahead. And what is ahead? What is ahead is Christ. We we have not already obtained all there is to obtain of Christ, so press on towards the goal. Don't give up. Make the choice that Christ will be more important to you at the end of this year than he was at the beginning. Choose to do whatever it takes to have Christ ranked higher in your heart tomorrow than he was today. And it's a choice. You understand? It is a choice. Faith and trust is a choice. It's something we exercise. Faith is a pressing in. Paul says, press in, dive in, immerse yourself, immerse yourself in the gospel and the good news of Christ because it's all about Jesus. My goodness, we need to stop making excuses for our lack of fire, our lack of passion, and start repenting for our lack of passion. You you can't play Fortnite every evening for three hours and convince Jesus in three minutes that your heart is crying out for him. We can't shed more tears for this is us than we do for our neighbors and expect our hearts to burn. We can't give God 10 minutes every other day and $10 every other week and then whine, where are you, Jesus? But oh my goodness, let one group of people, let one person within a group of people determine that they are going to get thoroughly right with Almighty God, that they're going to seek God with all their heart, that they will be satisfied with nothing less than knowing Christ and gaining Christ and being found in Christ. And then you watch as people are attracted to God and His church like people to a flame on a cold night. Jesus is irresistible. In his book, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel tells a story of two famous evangelists of the 1940s, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton. Templeton was Graham's close friend and a partner at many crusades in the early years. In fact, many who heard both speak would tell you that Templeton had more natural ability. He was a better speaker, better communicator, better preacher. But in the late 1940s, Templeton began to have doubts about the Bible, about faith, about Christianity. In fact, he began to try to persuade Graham of his views, but Billy Graham took a step of faith and chose to trust God's word as truth. So Templeton and Graham ultimately parted ways. Billy Graham went on to become one of the most admired Christian men of the day, and Charles Templeton went on to become a writer and a celebrated agnostic. A number of years ago, Lee Strobel listened to Graham preach at the RCA Dome in Indianapolis and then got in his car and drove to Connecticut. Canada, from that meeting, drove to Canada where Charles Templeton had agreed to meet with him. He was in his 80s, failing health. Templeton had agreed to answer some questions about why he had rejected faith in God. The end of the interview was especially poignant. Strobel writes, I asked Templeton, so how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question Stroll said, but I wasn't ready for the response that it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened, his guard seemingly down. He spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. He was the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. And abruptly, Templeton stopped. His thoughts grew silent. And then Lee Strobel heard words he never really expected to hear. If I may put it this way, Templeton said as his voice began to crack, I 
miss him. Tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and he looked down, raising his hand to shield his face as he wept. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. Because you understand, it is all about Jesus. In the end, in the beginning, and every time in the middle, it's all about Jesus. So I just want to invite you, make the next week, the next month, the next year, a time to come and see. Come and see this man who is worth your life and who thought that your life was worth his death. Come and see this man who is like no other, this man who knows you intimately and loves you insanely. The man who wrestled death to the mad and sent his spirit to give us joy and life in the midst of the darkness. Come and see this man who shaped history and invites you into his story. Come and see. That's how it started with those who follow Christ. That's how it always starts with those who follow Christ. We see that call all the way back in in the beginning in John chapter 1, verses 43 through 46, the story of the first disciples, the first followers of Christ. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. They they went to see him. What did they find? They found that there is no greater treasure. I want to end this episode with a prayer from A.W. Tozier. It's the response of a heart with a deep, deep longing for God. I hope maybe you'll make this prayer your own today, but I want to pray it over you and me, over us. Oh God, we have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied us and made us thirsty for more. We are painfully conscious of our need for further grace. And we are ashamed of our lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show us your glory. I pray that we may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within us. Say to our soul, say to my soul, rise up and come away. And then give us the grace to rise and follow you up from the misty lowland where we have wandered so long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.